Today's episode of Pivot Points is made possible by listeners like you. If you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts or any other platform, please remember to leave us a review. Each review helps more people find the show and join our community. This podcast explores the dynamics at play when we make the critical decisions that determine the course of our lives. We all make most decisions on limited information. Sometimes the outcomes are great, other times they're not. Regardless, there are lessons to be learned in the process. I hope this episode gives all of you a new perspective, whether you're currently serving, are a veteran like me, or regardless of background, are just interested in exploring the unique paths my guests have taken and examining their decision-making process. And with that, let's dive in. Trevor, welcome. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. So unique. You're the first first year that I've had on so yeah. far. I mean, everybody I've interviewed's either been like Stanford Ignite, which was a, a pretty small program, mm-hmm. or uh, or a second year that can kind of gloss <laughs> over a bit of like what first years like, especially right. recruiting. Um, and so we're gonna get those painful memories while they're fr- while they're fresh. Absolutely. Yeah, so. they haven't quite scarred over yet. So. <laughs> But uh, before we do all that, you know, I've gotten to know you over the last four months, but yeah. but can you just kind of tell me where you're from and, and kind of like what your childhood was like? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, originally from Kentucky, where, where my dad was from, I was born down there and uh, li- we lived there, you know, my mom, my dad and I until it was about two or three and then uh, some stuff happened with his family. So we moved back to Indiana where my mom was from and I ended up going to like the same school system as my mom. So it's kind of weird in high school. I was, you know, seeing her picture up on the wall when she was winning like softball state championships and stuff like that. Very, very interesting uh, place to grow up in, but small town, uh, middle of a cornfield in Indiana, uh, not too far north of Indianapolis. So we would have, you know, kind of the southern half of our county was a lot of the more like wealthier suburbs, um, you know, huge high schools, very wealthy neighborhoods. And then we were just kind of up in the farms up north. But that was that's kind of where I grew up, um, you know. Uh, very feel very fortunate in hindsight you know we had a, a big family I'm the oldest of four uh, which is something very important to me probably talk a bit more about that because um, it's factored into a lot of these decisions I've made I think but you know in in hindsight like you know growing up with a larger family in kind of rural America you you know you don't have as many opportunities as as a lot of folks I think and you know I feel very fortunate just to be where I am now coming from you know, that kind of background. So okay. that's, that's kind of a, a heavy way to say that's where I'm from though. <laughs> no, got it, man. Well, so were you living on a farm or did your family farm at all? Or were you just happen to be like in that sort of an environment? Yeah. Yeah. Not, so not for employment uh, as small, like a little seven acre spot. We had, you know, horses for sometimes when I was growing up, we had cows off and on just, you know, raising things to, to sell at auction. But, you know, farming was not uh, what we did for like employment or to sustain ourselves. Uh, my dad had a kind of a broad swath of kind of general manager jobs until he landed where he's at now, where he's he's running like a very large uh, residential electrical company in the Indianapolis area. So that's that's what he's doing. And then my mom sold insurance for forever and hated it. Insurance uh, agents treat them kindly. I know usually when you get on the phone with them, you're very frustrated, but they uh, they don't love their jobs. I think so. Be kind to them. She hated it. 
Um, and now, she, but now she works for our hometown, kind of like the, the town government, my hometown of 1200 people that <laughs> my mom works for, but that, that's what they did when I was growing up. Cool, man. So family is six, you know, I guess you're the oldest. So, you know, it yeah. grows as you're, you're growing up yep. and small town just North of Indianapolis, mm-hmm. but kind of like had a bit of that division with the, uh, the wealthy yeah. suburbs in the South growing up seems like it was, I mean, everybody has their troubles, but it seems mm-hmm. like it was pretty good. Um, and then what was the first major kind of decision for you? Was it where you go to high school or, or was it after that and choosing, you know, where you're going to go to college and in your military decision? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I can definitely talk through that. Yeah. So um, never much of a decision about like where to go to high school. We didn't, you know, the only other options around would be, you know, some of the like Catholic private schools in our area, but you know, we didn't really have the money for something like that. Um, but, you know, went to a state school or a public school, pretty good. Uh, we had a lot of kind of sponsorships with some of the state universities, like Purdue gave us a bunch of computers, stuff like that. So it was a good school um, for how small it was. And, you know, I, I performed pretty well. And that, that kind of started me kind of down the path of figuring out what, what does college look like? And, you know, no one in my family uh, had graduated college ever. You know, my parents didn't have degrees or anything. And, you know, I was making that decision a, a bit in a vacuum and trying to figure out what what exactly I wanted to do. And and I had no idea. You know, I was, I was kind of just floating by. I loved playing soccer and just being like, you know, a, a nerdy kid with way too long of hair. And that was about my whole high school life. Um, you know, no, no larger sense of, of purpose of, you know, I want to go to, you know, random school to study engineering or whatever the case was. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And, you know, my dad, you know, because, because finances were what they were, you know, my dad was kind of helping me look at some decisions that would, you know, help, help pay for school. And that kind of started me down some of those conversations of, of looking at the military as a way to go to college. Um, you know, I went to, uh, like some some summer leader camps at like West Point. I don't know if you ever went to something like that, but um, so West Point was definitely in the conversation. I think for the longest, I wanted to be like a fighter pilot, so I was just looking at the Air Force Academy. Um, you know, in hindsight, glad for a few reasons I didn't go that route, but <laughs> um, and that was kind of what I was looking at for a while until I realized that you know I went and did a, a few weeks over the summer at West Point, and I didn't love feeling like I was in, in boot camp, you know, and I, I didn't want that to be my whole college experience. So no knock to, you know, a lot of the folks you've had on here that have gone to service academies, but I'm sure they can, they can identify with that being a good portion of their experience. Yeah, man. I, I, uh, I wouldn't say that I've always like known myself self perfectly, but I definitely knew myself well enough to know that West Point was not the place for me Yeah, at like 18. Uh, and didn't look at it at all, didn't Mm -hmm. apply. And I was at, you know, I definitely saw a lot of people do it because I spent two years of high school at a, not at a military high school, but on, Mm -hmm. at a high school on a military base. Okay. okay. So like, you're not wearing uniforms, not in military school where it's like super structured, but everyone who goes to that school is the son or daughter of somebody in the military. So you still see the culture, you see the culture and yeah, you'll, you'll end up having like 10 people a year apply to go to the academies. Mm -hmm. So you know, see him doing all that. And I was just like, yeah, it's not going to be me. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, very much same boat. I didn't know exactly what I wanted. I just knew it wasn't that. And so I started looking at ROTC as a viable option and, 
you know, I, I don't really know why, but I kind of just settled on Army ROTC versus, you know, Navy or Air Force ROTC or any of the other, you know, I, I didn't even really know that OCS existed until I was already halfway through college, you know, um, so I, I wasn't really super intelligent about maybe all the decisions that were out there to me or uh, opportunities that were out there for me. But uh, that was the kind of the decision making is, well, I need to pay for school this army thing, I haven't found a better alternative. And, you know, if I win one of these ROTC scholarships, then it's, it's all bought and paid for. And, um, you know, so that was the process in deciding a college was actually going through the ROTC loophole first, you know, you get, get the scholarship. And, you know, I kind of had a short list of schools that I, I was interested in going to. And then from there, it was just, okay, which of these can I really maximize the, the, you know, savings of not coming out of this with student loans. So ended up going to Transylvania University, your rival school. Um, but really at the time it, it was based on two things. A, it was, you know, it's in Lexington, Kentucky. I always had this like spiritual connection back to Kentucky. And, you know, we visited uh, my dad's family usually like once a year. And I was just like, okay, I'm a Kentucky and I'm not, I'm not from Indiana, even though I've grown up here, you know, 14 years of my life. And uh, so I really want to get back to Kentucky. And that was that was a big part of the reason why. And then the other reason was uh, the school, if you had the ROTC scholarship, they would throw in room and board. So it's like, okay, I can go there for free for free rather than, you know, just free tuition or whatever, you know, still a great deal. But uh, that was, it made the list much shorter when I started looking at it kind of with those metrics. And I just on a whim, that's, that's where I ended up going. So very small, for those of you that haven't heard of it, because most people probably haven't, very small uh, liberal arts college, of like a thousand people, 1200 people when I was going there. So very tiny in downtown Lexington, Kentucky. So that, that was the whole, the whole college decision. And ultimately how I ended up in the army was just because I was contracted through ROTC. Yeah, I won't fault you too much. I mean, I think the only thing Transylvania has on center is that it's, it's not in Danville. <laughs> yeah, that it's in downtown Lexington. But right. every other metric, it's really hard to even be rivals. I mean, center's just so much better. It's just you don't even spell center right. <laughs> Anyone out there should just Google Center College. They they spell they they can't even spell. Center this is going right. to be a really niche <laughs> joke, but you guys don't even say Versailles right, so. <laughs> There's a town That's in true. Kentucky right the, outside the Lexington Castle. called Versailles. Yeah, man, Americans. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we just mess things up. Um, so okay, you go to Transylvania and yeah. you're doing ROTC, but it mm -hmm. doesn't sound like you had much of a military connection, you know, through your family or anything like that. Yeah. How much of a culture shock was, you know, University of Kentucky ROTC? You're off campus, so you probably don't have to do as much. But do you feel like there was a point? Cause you get a, your first year's a free ride. Yeah. You, if you don't show up to class on the first day of your second year, then you're, you know, you're locked in at that point and you have money mm -hmm. if you, if you back out. Yeah. Um, was there any consideration of that on your part or, or did you feel good about the decision post hoc or how'd that go for you? Yeah. So the, I would say the first month or two did not go well for me. And I was, you know, seriously considering, you know, dropping both ROTC and out of college. And, you know, it was just like maybe one too many culture shocks for me at once where I was, you know, here I am, I'm 18. I don't know what I want and I'm away from family, which is what I thought I wanted. And it actually, that ended up being kind of hard. I was a few hours away, um, you know, being at a school that was actually like Chris alluded to not 
directly tied to the University of Kentucky. So I had my ROTC classes at the UK campus, but everything else, I was the only cadet at Transy. So I'm, you know, I had my friend group there, but there wasn't a lot of overlap uh, between those two worlds for me. And that, that kind of made it harder for me to really feel like I was uh, connected to the ROTC culture for, for the good bit. Uh, part of it is uh, just the way kind of that the organization was designed, the ROTC battalion there. Um, the, the contracting officer at the time was, was a Lieutenant Colonel. He's retired now. He's, he's still working there, same job. But, you know, I just had in my mind, cause he was the only person that I dealt with this whole time. And he's, he's super friendly and nice cause he's the contracting officer and his, his whole job is to get me there. Um, I just thought he was in charge of the whole show. So I show up to the first day at PT and there's, there's just this random tall, skinny dude that walks up to me and says, hi, I'm Jason Cummins. And I'm just like, Oh, Hey, what's up? Like, I didn't, I didn't know this man is like an active duty Lieutenant Colonel. He's, this is a battalion command for him. You know, he's, he's on his last assignment before he retires. And he's like this, you know, come to find out once I started to learn about the army and learn about, you know, what some things meant. Um, then I realized like, Oh, this guy has had a very decorated career as like an Apache pilot. And now he works for uh, the athletic department at Kentucky. But uh, anyways, a big part of a culture shock there was that day one where you just have this, I had no idea who this guy was, but he ended up having such a big hand in my life, you know, in, in terms of like actually swearing me in on my contract and actually giving me, you know, a lot of that more, more senior level mentorship as my four years progress. But a uh, very long way of saying that the culture shock was very real, um, you know, both, both in school and within ROTC and there for the, the first month or two really struggled to to make it fit for me just because I don't think I really entered into it with a strong sense of, of like why I wanted to do that other than just it's paying for school. When did that develop? And, and like, how did you develop that sense of like purpose, mm-hmm. especially driving? Cause I mean, it's, it's not your major. It, it honestly, right. it takes up a, a decent chunk of time, but mm-hmm. it's not tremendous. Um, and, and it's really hard to figure out what you want to do <laughs> right. immediately following school. Exactly. Uh, only through the program itself. Um, so like, when did that kind of click for you that, Oh, I'm going to go do this as a job. This is going to be my vocation. Yeah. And also like, you know, I can choose from any branch, mm-hmm. which of these are like the roles that I, I I'd like to serve in once I commission. Yeah. So uh, I'll kind of handle that in order. I guess it, it really took until almost my junior year before I really started to, to care at a, at a level where I was like, okay with investing my time rather than just, you know, my first years, I was very much so going through the motions. I mean, the military science classes are not difficult, especially those first two years. Like we're going to learn battle drills and then we're going to carry rubber weapons around. And you know, that, that yeah, was our training. Learn the basics of leadership. Exactly. Stuff like that. Yeah. I learned how to land nav. I thought that was fun because I liked being out in the woods and reading maps. So that was fine too. But you know, for the most part, not a lot of, you know, military content, uh, or like, like really tactical stuff that, you know, we actually end up doing in the army. Um, so the first couple of years I couldn't really justify driving to campus for PT three days a week when I could just drink at my campus until 2 AM and then sleep in and go to, go to class, you know, and I did, I made the wrong decision between the two more times than I would care to admit. Um, but around that third year, was uh, that a requirement for you to go to UK for PT? It, it was. Yeah. Because okay. we were local. Um, Oof. so some of the other satellite schools like Asbury, they had, 
like their own cadre and they would just yeah we had we had one at center which yeah. was nice but like that's brutal I'm yeah sorry so, <laughs> i mean it is across downtown but you know it, it is rough at 5 30 in the morning in december in lexington when that's the last thing you want to do is be driving to another school just to run um yeah so the, the first few years definitely kind of floated my way through it very intentionless and you know in hindsight that was an awful perspective because i was contracted like i i owed the government for you know my, my tuition and just for my being there and I, I just wasn't putting myself into it um, but in that third year you know i, I think the battalion did a, a good job of of giving more senior cadets leadership positions you know especially in you know like preparation for ldac and and what that's supposed to look look like so yeah, i think it was the first time i was made a squad leader which is such an arbitrary thing like you're a cadet who's a squad leader of a couple other cadets and then just some random university students who are taking PT as like a class. Like they're, they're not even wearing PTs. They're just wearing random workout clothes. Um, but like the, the first time I had re the responsibility to take like accountability of other people, um, it, that's when it started to click for me. And, you know, I, I actually enjoyed it in a way that I didn't think I would. And then from there it was kind of, full speed ahead. And I, I realized that, okay, this little taste of leadership is, is something that I really enjoy. And I know that, you know, if, if this is something, you know, if this being ROTC, if this is something I put myself into and, and really dedicate myself to being commissioned, um, then I'm, I'm going to be in charge of 30 plus people really as soon as I graduate. And, and that was something that I, I started to want very much so. And it was kind of surprising and it, it kind of came out of nowhere, but that was, that was around the time the transformation started to happen, I would say. And then for choosing your branch, like, yeah, you know, what kind of job you wanted to have as a 22 year old. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know if I would make the same decision now, but when you're not, when you don't have exposure to how the army really works, that's the whole point of this is like, right. Hey, what's your framework at the time you make a decision exactly. and then like the regrets you have based on your process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So my framework at the time was, so within our, within our armory, uh, we had just like a poster of each branch kind of hung up all around the, the wall up by the ceiling. So it'd be like infantry and they would give you a quick, you know, like two or three sentences about what the infantry does army aviation. Uh, ordinance, you know, it, it had all the branches there. Um, so that was a big part of my framework was how cool does this army like PR writing make all of these branches sound? And let me tell you, if if they can make air defense artillery sound cool, then they're doing a good job of, of spinning something that is, is not very cool. But a big part of my framework was that. And then another part was honestly just the cadre we had and, and the branches that they were in. So we had a very heavy combat arms slant uh, for our cadre to where I think for the majority of my time there, um, well, our, our PMS was uh, Jason Cummins, aviation guy. Um, but then all of the majors and captains were either field artillery, which is what I ended up choosing. Um, we had we had a couple infantry cats. We had like one armored dude, but we had, we had no loggies. We had no anything, like no engineers even. Um, it's so like, I, I was very heavily slanted towards combat arms without even realizing it. And so, you know, and, and I knew, you know, kind of between the decision of like, oh, active duty or national guard or, or what, I knew that it was something I wanted to do full time. So for me, you know, the active, the active duty decision was easy for me to make, but from there at looking at branches, it was like, okay, I want to go combat arms. I probably don't 
want to try hard enough on the PT test to be a pilot. So I'm, so aviation is ruled out and I don't want to go to ranger school because again, I'm lazy. So infantry is ruled out and I'm getting the head shake because I'm talking to a green beret, but I was too lazy to go to ranger school. So field artillery it was. And that was, <laughs> that was as, as much thought as I really put into it. Um, that and like, I mean, I, you know, they do the branch days. So like the branch chief, especially being in Kentucky. So like the actual branch chief came up from Fort Knox and, you know, artillery was pitched to me as like this, this fraternity and like everyone's so cool and, you know, very collegial and, and to an extent that that is what the culture of the branch is. But, you know, at the time that was just why I made that decision is I wanted to be in combat arms, but I didn't want to try hard enough to be in the infantry basically. And that was it. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be rocket science. Yeah. I had a great career, but Field. that was how I started it. <laughs> Field artillery. Field artillery. <laughs> combat arms light. I like it. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. It's technically combat arms, okay? <laughs> hey, a lot of math, yeah, right? There was a lot of math. <laughs> okay, so, so you go through training for mm-hmm. Sil Oklahoma, and then yes. where, do you, uh, where do you get stationed? And what's that like? Yeah, so uh, I got stationed at Fort Bliss, um, in, in the first armor division. So it was after they moved from, from Germany a few years prior and yeah, started in a like rank and file cannon line. I was in a striker brigade at the time, which was kind of cool. So, uh, you know, at a place like Fort bliss <laughs> striker guys are like our light infantry, which is hilarious. Um, but it, it was, it was a lot of fun and, you know, just doing, going out and doing a lot of training with the maneuver guys when they would you know be going out and doing all their tables. For me, that was so much fun. Um, you know, like I knew how to shoot a cannon. I'd learned that at Fort Sill. I knew how to do you know, like all the technical stuff behind the scenes. I knew how to be an observer and call for fire, but actually going out and, you know, putting it all together during a brigade live fire, that was when it all became very cool to me. Um, yeah, that was, that was where I was stationed first. And was your first job like as a fire support officer to a company or were you a mm-hmm. platoon leader within like a field artillery battalion? Yeah. So somewhere? Yeah, the artillery is interesting because you have lieutenants that are platoon leaders, but then within the platoons, you also have an additional lieutenant who is the fire direction officer. So they're in charge of, and that was my initial job. So what I owned was the actual, the, the squad equivalent that processed all that firing data and sent it down to the cannons. Um, so I had I had 10 guys and we would sit in the back of a Humvee with a couple of, of laptops and we would compute all the data that would get sent to the guns and, and shoot whatever the, the observers wanted us to hit. But that was my first job was just, just really being the legal overhead for that whole enterprise. And if there's a firing incident, then you know it's on me. And then the platoon leader really owned more of the tactical side of, okay, how do we emplace the guns? How do, you know, how are we supplying the ammo, stuff like that? And I was just in charge of shooting the guns. Um, so I did that for about a year and went through several live fires and, and loved it. Um, and then became XO after that. And then that was, I did that for almost two years, really up until deployment. So, okay. So you got the FDO job, yep, which I was never a platoon leader. Okay. So you're a leader, but you're, you don't get the, the true experience of leading like 30 soldiers. Right. And, and either one counts. So you didn't get mm-hmm. an opportunity to go do that later. You went right to the XO position. Right. Okay. And then mm-hmm. did you deploy as an XO? No. So out of the XO position, I... Uh, transitioned up to the battalion staff and I was kind of in a holding pattern because I was I was very much in limbo on what I was going to do I I was at about three years in at that point and because I was 
you know, because I was coming out of ROTC and I only had the four year commitment, I was, I was very much so, uh, kind of flip-flopping on what I was going to do at that four year mark. And, you know, I was, I was looking at things like, you know, do I get out and, you know, being in Texas, they, they're, they're great with veterans in their schools. So I was looking at something like, do I join the guard and go to like law school at UT for free or, you know, something like that. And I was looking at a lot of those decisions, um, very much. So just kind of being bored and a little burnt out of, of the army at that point. Um, and, and so they kind of moved me up to staff and, you know, <laughs> did not work nearly as hard as I was as an XO for, for the last two years. So that, that part was great. But then I started to kind of get a taste for what staff like was staff life was like. I know that sounds hilarious. Um, but you know, when, when you're down at the, at the line unit, you just hate the staff, right? Like it's always, Oh, it's mandatory. It's, it's always coming. Oh, staff is, is fucking a staff is They're the worst. We got to do they this. Suck always. Yeah, exactly. Yep. But then, but then you go up to staff and you, and you kind of see what that whole information flow looks like from, you know, all the various higher headquarters that are above you and, and how do you distill it down into something that is hopefully mostly actionable by the, by the line units, by, by those commanders. And I really started to, to enjoy that piece and, and enjoy the whole just enabling commanders decisions. And that, that's when I, that's when it started to click for me that the army was something that you know, I, I didn't enjoy it enough to, I knew I didn't want to be a, a KD major. Like I, I had no desire to be an S3 or an XO of a battalion. I had no desire to be a battalion commander, but I knew that. So, so I was ruling out that 20 year career short of going FAO or, you know, to some functional area. Um, so I was starting to rule that out, but rather than getting out at the four year mark, I was realizing like, oh, if I stay in for another few years, I, A, I can build additional education benefits through the VA, but B, you know, I'm, I'm still having these rewarding experiences, but now I've actually seen the different side of the army, which is more of the operations and, and the staff side. And now I realized, you know, early on that that was probably something I could really throw myself into and, and leverage for, you know, whatever the after army opportunity would be. And that, and that was my experience for the last three years was, you know, jumping around on a bunch of different staffs and you know, happy to unpack that. I'm no, I'm kind of all We've, over the place. Well, but. no, we, we at least have to unpack <laughs> a little bit about the qualities that you liked about staff. And yeah. I, you like briefly mentioned it because mm-hmm. most people, for, for those of you who yeah. weren't in the military, oh, staff, everyone hates staff. Yeah. Everyone is obligated to dislike the staff mm-hmm. that is above them. And on top of that, like when you go to staff, you spend half your time bitching about the fact that you're on staff, <laughs> right? Like that's just the way it goes. Most people mm-hmm. want to be in command. Most people want to, you know, be in a unit of action, yeah. whatever size that may be. Um, and even if you're in like a battalion staff, right. Where mm-hmm. you're still really close to the, the guys and gals who are getting after it. You, st- it's still not still. Sexy. Yeah. You still want to <laughs> be like, yeah, I'm doing this job and it's a job of service and support of them. Right. But like, let, let's get back to the, you know, yeah. the position that matters, which is, you know, some the, position wearing the hat, the leadership spot. Yeah, I can illustrate it, I think, briefly just in what the difference in my day to day, you know, before and after. So before when I was an XO, my day to day was, oh, I'm, I'm going out to the motor pool. I'm watching them, you know, break whatever we just tried to fix. But, you know, I'm like, I'm down with the soldiers. I'm watching them, you know, work on their equipment and, and kind of that whole feedback loop of, 
of just that that FaceTime with with soldiers was so rewarding to me. And then going to staff and it's like, okay, we, yeah, we had some soldiers on the staff, but they were like the commander's drive de- driving team. And, you know, you have like some of your HR soldiers and stuff like that. But you know, that, that was not my role. I was in operations. We didn't have soldiers. It was just a bunch of old lieutenant, like old crusty lieutenants up there. And I was, I was one of them. And, you know, I was, I entered it, uh, very hesitant. Cause like I said, I was, I was very much so weighing what that next decision looked like for me and, you know, evaluating that, but no, it was, you know, I, I owed a lot to the, the AS threes at the time who were just coming out of triple C and who were kind of giving me a taste of, Oh, you guys were also jaded lieutenants, but you kind of stuck it out. You went to the career course and now you're back and, and you're, still finding value in doing this job. So that was, it was rewarding to me to see like, oh, I, I can do that option and, you know, maybe get a command out of it or, or do whatever, follow in their footsteps. Um, but B, it was really working with, you know, the staff is the first time I was really working cross-functionally at all. And it's the first time you really have exposure to folks with different MOSs for the most part outside of like the, the supply or combo reps down at the unit level. Um, so, so talking, so working with military intelligence folks, working with, you know, uh, actual sustainers, whenever we would get lucky enough to have a loggy as our, our unit S4, um, you know, like working with some of these people with more niche areas of expertise, I, I started to see a little bit of the value in that as well to where, Oh, I'm not at the unit level. I don't have to pull a rabbit out of the hat every time I'm asked to do something. Now, when I'm asked to do something, you know, my, my piece of that something is actually generally very small and specialized and it's you know going to members other members of this team that have other areas of expertise and and figuring out okay how do all of our parts fit together to enable the subordinate commanders because at the end of the day you know we we had a great battalion commander who made it very clear that our job was to make his battery commander successful it wasn't to make him successful and now you know we kind of approached it with that mindset and it i think it helped us you kind of get over a lot of that, oh, staff, you know, a lot of that at the unit level, or at least we tried to, but that was, that was what I had started to enjoy about it for sure. Okay. So the cross-functional teams is a big part of it for you. Was it also the, so like another component, and this is really what commanders do, but then staff actualizes it, Mm -hmm. is looking at what the priorities are and trying to determine like, how do we take the priorities from higher, sometimes of which are conflicting, and like right. <laughs> implement these effectively, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think one of the major reasons that most people hate staffs is that you get 10 priorities that come down. Mm-hmm. There's only time for five, and three of them are conflicting. And so you just look like, what What are you doing? You're not setting me up for success, right? right? Yeah, because you know, you're always going to get taskings like, hey, uh, sorry, Charlie Battery, but you're about to put 20 guys on gate guard for the next month. We just found out. Like, there's there's nothing we can do for you, right? And and so yeah, those those hey yous and you know the prioritization goes out the window very quickly. But we we did really try our best, you know, uh, taking into account the various planning horizons, and you know we're really all over the place because you know by the time I joined the staff, the unit was already flagged for a deployment, so we knew okay, the, the brigade at large is deploying like 60%. So we don't know, you know, how many folks are going out of the artillery battalion, but we, we know some of us are going, but we need to be prepared to send everybody. So we were doing a full, you know, battalion certification process in preparation for an NTC. But at the same time, 
you know, we had, we had like a brigade in Africa at the time and we, we just didn't have the manpower at Fort Bliss to do all those day-to-day things like gate guard, like ammo detail, stuff like that. So yeah, being a staff officer in, in that situation was very uncomfortable at times because we knew, hey, Alpha Battery needs to get hot. They need to go out to the field next week to train what they need to train and you want to protect that for that commander. Uh, but then the, the hey yous always come down. So always, it's always staff's fault. <laughs> 100%. And did you deploy in that role with your unit from Bliss? So that was the plan originally. Um, I was going to deploy as part of the battalion staff who was going uh, to Eastern Afghanistan uh, for the, the NATO advisory mission. So uh, the, the folks from that staff that ended up deploying in those positions, they were going across the wire every day to talk to you know Afghan army counterparts at one of the core headquarters and that that was kind of their central mission um, there was a, a manning issue up at, in the brigade FSO cell so I actually got pulled up to there um, and took on more of a like anti-terrorism role at the brigade headquarters um, so we, we we still oversaw kind of what they were doing at the advisory level but you know we we were kind of the lowest level ground commander you know with our brigade commander where there were like actual combat assets so we we had some aviation we had some cannons under us and you know some assets like that so a little more of the anti-terrorism function is what i ultimately ended up doing in that uh, brigade fso slot and how long did you were you there for a year yeah 10 months 10 months Mm -hmm. and then and then what was next yeah so at 10 months later uh redeployed and i had really like a, a month um you know, part of it was Christmas and then, okay. So so when you say anti-terrorism and being at the brigade staff, you were still deployed. You just weren't with your battalion anymore. Okay. All right. Where were you out of? Were you also Eastern Afghanistan? Yeah. So we were all mostly on the same base. Uh, We were at Logman, um, in in Logman at, at Gambary, which is the 201st, uh, Afghan Corps headquarters. So that's why our headquarters was there. It's that strategic partnership. Um, and then we had we had quite a few folks down at Jalalabad at the airfield, you know, just for security purposes down there. And a lot of our aviation was down there as well. So we were kind of split between the two. For the most part, I was, you know, I was a fobbit. You know, I was doing staff work and I was I was doing all this uh, sexy data crunching for for targeting, which is a fun buzzword that we throw around. And, you know, you know, at the end of the day, it was a lot of analysis of, of what's going on in the country and within our region and and trying to, you know, a lot of the same stuff I was doing in my first staff job of enabling those subordinate commanders. But now, you know, it was a little more real. It was, okay, I'm enabling this company commander who's actually going out on patrol. So like that, that analysis kind of took on a little more weight. Uh, yeah. Gravity for sure. Um, and, and it was very rewarding. Um, and then, you know, towards the summer that was, there was kind of like a big push. Uh, that was the big uh, ISIS campaign to push ISIS out of Southern Afghanistan and Eastern Afghanistan. So ended up, uh, yeah, leaving the FOB for a few months and we, we built like a firing base kind of down in Nangahar, which was, was kind of crazy. It was a lot of fun. You know, we were just alone and very afraid in the middle of Nangahar with some cannons and some Afghan army dudes with machine guns. And we were just chilling, uh, shooting in support of, of some of your folks. So that was, that was kind of what, what we ended up doing towards the last half of the deployment. Good. Anytime as a staff officer, you can get forward and, you know, outside the wire a yeah, little yeah. bit. It's a good move. So I'm glad you got that opportunity. Um, so coming back from that, mm-hmm. what was next for you in the military? Were your thoughts already kind of moving past it? You kind of ruled out a career. So yeah, I'm sure like 
your moves were always in the back of your head on what you were mm-hmm. going to do next. Yeah, definitely. So I, I was promoted to captain halfway through the deployment. So I was kind of already earmarked for triple C and, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't really fighting the next step. I, at that point I knew that if I could make it to seven years of service, then I could have the GI bill. So that was kind of my next horizon. Um, you know, coming out of the deployment, I was at like four and a half. So, you know, it took like a month of leave Christmas and all that. And then back to lovely Lawton, Oklahoma, which I've spent a, in, in total, I've spent a year of my life in Lawton, Oklahoma. So don't recommend it. Um, but yeah, I went back there for, for triple C at, you know, at the FA schoolhouse and, um, you know, was very fortunate. Uh, one of the commanders who I was XO for the longest and who was one of my mentors was actually my assignments officer at the time, which, which factored into, you know, a little bit into why I stayed in the army as well. Cause I knew that, okay, I, I have this mentor, this mentor is kind of seeing behind the curtain a little bit and how the, the army works. And he's, he's kind of giving me this high level, like, Hey, stay in, like there are some good opportunities out there. And he kind of pushed me towards one of those opportunities, which was to go to uh, Fort Lewis. So I ended up out there for my last two and a half years and some change. Um, and transitioning from cannons to rockets was was what the unit was designed to do. But we ended up actually doing a little bit more. Um, you know, I, I did a little bit of like fire support work for the, the core headquarters, but we really did a lot of a pilot program called the MDTF. Um, what's that stand for yeah so it it stands for the multi-domain task force and it was kind of this you know a a big phrase full of multiple buzzwords there but it was kind of this effort the army had and and it's ongoing but you know kind of looking at the the future of warfare and you know how it it was probably going to be less about tanks and artillery and more about you know cyber and and information warfare stuff like that Um, it was kind of a, a pilot program of, of a multifunctional unit that could do, you know, a little more, I guess, broad spectrum warfare. They, they called it multi-domain because we had, we had like some cyber personnel and, you know, a lot of those other folks under us who, uh, you know, kind of all together, we were supposed to be this like expeditious package that you could deploy as like a deterrent. And we were, you know, specifically designed to operate in the Pacific. So spent a lot of, you know, the last couple of years, kind of, you know, doing staff planning for a lot of operations that we, where we ended up just island hopping in like Japan. And then we would go down to Australia and train down there. And it it was a lot of fun uh, going through that whole process, but that was one of those big opportunities that I was being told to go take. So I I went and I I loved it. And and as a part of that, coming Mm -hmm. out of the career course, which by the way, great branding by the military, right? Like right. you're like four <laughs> or maybe five course. years old. Five years <laughs> in, this is the career course. Right. Gotcha now. Yeah. You're stuck. <laughs> um, but uh, so usually you come out and you you either take a company right away mm-hmm. or you wait on staff for a little bit, but like everybody's itching to become a company commander. Yeah. Did that materialize for you in that MDTF? Yeah, so it, it, it was kind of a, a dual hat admission where at the end of the day, it was still, you know, we were still a field artillery brigade. We still had two um, artillery battalions with rocket launchers. And then we had a, a support battalion underneath us as well. And that, that was kind of the brigade. And then a very large brigade headquarters that kind of had this, all these attachments under us for the pilot program. Um, so yeah, there were still opportunities to go down and command those line units, those, those rocket batteries. 
And, you know, I was very much in, in the conversation, you know, I, I showed up and I was already a little more senior uh, than a lot of folks that were coming out of the schoolhouse. And, um, you know, after like the first six months on the job, you're like, okay, like Trevor can, can go command. Um, and we were starting to look at some of those command windows and I was, I was looking at the long range training calendar and, you know, with, with in the back of my mind, my horizon of, okay, in, in two years, I'm getting out. You know, I, I knew that by then the seven year mark would be the right time for me to do what I'm doing now. So I, I had that backstop and I was looking at the, at this long range training calendar, which you know was, was kind of my baby as, as an operations officer on the staff. And I, I was looking out at kind of all these, uh, you know, different exercises that, that we had planned out. And it was, it was a very high op tempo unit because of this, this pilot program, we were testing all this doctrine and new equipment. Um, so we were always out doing something. We were always traveling. Uh, to work with some other unit. And I realized that I would rather, it, I, I realized that I could get more out of that whole process by being at the staff level and being involved in in that planning portion um, and, and carrying it through to execution than I would at the command level. And, and that was a tough decision for me to make, um, you know, because I was basically forfeiting my last real opportunity to lead you know, like a, a lot of folks at once. Um, you know, I was, you know, on the one hand, it was go command 80 soldiers, which is an opportunity I would have loved to have. You know, I, I loved having soldiers as a lieutenant, and I, I was missing that very much so. But just looking at it from a, a personal perspective, I, I, you know, my my cost benefit analysis there was, uh, what am I going to benefit from more? Is it the, you know, personal satisfaction of of getting this command to check that block and to lead soldiers for the last time, or is it you know, more figuring out how do I operate on a team? How do I work with, you know, people from outside organizations that I have no control over? And, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, more intangible skills is, is what I chose to pursue over just the, the leadership of soldiers. And, you know, it was a hard decision to make, but I'm, I am glad I made it where I'm at now, where I, I feel much more uh, comfortable in some of those settings of you know working with with folks with just crazy different backgrounds because i part of what i was doing was working with australian planners and working with japanese planners and you know working with all these folks from different units yeah like indirect influence is a skill absolutely and like learning how to to begin to lay the groundwork and then navigate an institution is is like it it takes time <laughs> absolutely yeah so, so so the last two years i you know focused more on on that and you know Frankly, I also had a great deal of access to our brigade commander, and I found that, you know, I, I, I was also in a position where I was being handed the keys, you know, to, to dad's car a lot. Like, hey, this is a, a sexy exercise that's happening in three months. Trevor, you plan it. And, you know, having that amount of agency and having, having the ability to sit down and plan something out and then just have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a brigade commander about here's what I think your unit should do, you know, and I, my, my six years of experience in the army. Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling this guy, this is what I think the brigade should do. This is in line with what the department of defense wants us to do. This is in line with what the Corps wants us to do. Whoever was asking us to do the task and having that amount of access and that amount of, of impact, uh, was, was something I realized I was not going to get, you know, in almost any other situation with the amount of experience I had. So super rewarding. Yeah. 
And so fast forward from that, you get mm-hmm. a, a bunch of cool opportunities. You know that seven years is your backstop yeah. pretty much. But do you know what's next? So like when you're starting to sit down and think about, okay, I'm going to submit my packet to get out of the military mm-hmm. and going to go do something else. Like what were your options? What were you considering? And was it, and how did it become like MBA is like the path for you? Yeah. So at the really early in that decision-making process, I was still looking at law school to an extent. And, it, and a lot of it was just kind of a residual. It was something I almost did when I was in Texas, just because it would have been fairly easy, you know, very, very much so go with the flow option there. But, you know, so it still had this kind of residual pull of, you know, I know a lot of vets go to law school. I know a lot of vets go to business school, which do I want to do? And I was very fortunate that my best friend that I was exos with, you know, way back in the day, he got out um, after his commitment was over, went to law school, hated it, hates being a lawyer. And I was, you know, around the time I was, I was getting to where I needed to commit to one or the other so I could start building out applications and going through, you know, either GMAT or LSAT. Um, you know, he was, he was about six months into his job and I had already seen him go through school for three years. And I was just like, you know what? Uh, even if business school is that hard, it's still one year shorter. So that's, there's a big reason why to go to business school instead. Um, but I, I think too, um, you know, at at the end of the day, I, I had gone through a a very rewarding, you know, army career that was opening a lot of doors for me. And I didn't want to necessarily start closing some of them off. And I, I saw business school as a way to continue to to kind of leverage my position and, and gain access to more opportunities than I might have coming out of law school. And, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily the case now, but at the time that was kind of my, my thinking was like, Oh, if I go to law school, I have to be a lawyer. Whereas if I go to you know, an MBA program, I can be whatever in the corporate world. So a, a lot of that was kind of the decision-making there for, for business school versus law school. And, you know, then I started applications. <laughs> well, to back it up just a bit, yeah. like, implicitly you were like hey i'm gonna stay because i get the full va benefit Mm -hmm. why was it always school though because you can get out and get a job too yeah that's a great question if i'm thinking about it uh you know a lot of it has to do with you know i when i joined the army i knew so little about the world because my my experience was kind of defined by these these cornfields in indiana and you know having come from from that kind of background to, you know, being a, like the first college grad in the family to, oh, now I've lived all over the country as, you know, being assigned in the army. You know, I, I realized that I, I didn't know enough about what was out there to, to commit to, you know, like some of the more common exit opportunities, like go be a, a product manager at Amazon or, or, you know, whatever some of the, the common um, kind of military officer transition roles are. And, I, I didn't know. Yeah. I, did, I didn't know enough to pick an industry and say, okay, that's what I want to do for the next couple of years or potentially the rest of my career. And, you know, school was just another opportunity for me to continue to, as I kind of look at the timeline of my life, continue to just advance myself kind of above where, you know, where I started. And so for me, continuing education was always a, a big priority versus just, you know, getting out and pursuing a career full time immediately after. Okay. Okay. So you, you focus on school, you go yep. through the law school MBA dynamic, and it seems yep. like it was almost like a no to law school more than yeah. it was like a yes <laughs> to the MBA. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, that, that was a big part of it. And 
you know, uh, the, the same buddy though, at, at the same time, you know, one of his internships while he was in law school was with BCG and, you know, he, and, and as a consultant you know, when he was a JD student and, you know, he, he kind of just started to put that in my ear a little bit like, Hey, some of the stuff that you're enjoying in the army, is kind of what consultants do, um, you know, working with, working with CEOs or, or, you know, presidents of divisions or whoever the client is. And I realized that, oh, wait, I can actually leverage something that I enjoyed out of the army rather than just, okay, I did my seven years, got the GI bill, check the block, move on. It was actually, you know, it ended up being more of a fluid progression. Like it, it was actually a logical step that I made without realizing it was the next logical step for me <laughs> moving forward. Okay. So you, you choose MBA. I mean, that's yep. some, some decent logic way to throw that in. Um, <laughs> but then, uh, you know, you were the first in your family to graduate college, let alone apply to graduate school. Mm. You have a couple friends, I'm guessing you've mentioned the one that's in law school, but like, who did you lean on for like trying to form an application and be competitive? Yeah. Um, so the, the operations cell that I was in, we had, we had two majors working for us and while well, I was working for two majors, I'll rephrase that, but we had two majors in the cell and, and they both had MBAs and you know, they, they did it as, as part of like, uh, advanced civil schooling. And then they just jumped right back into the army afterwards. But, uh, you know, they, they had been through the process. They, they knew what it was to study for the GMAT while also being in the field a few weeks out of every month or, you know, whatever the, the case was. And they, they helped me out in, in terms of some of the more tangible prep uh, for the application, you know, uh, letters of recommendation, stuff like that as well. As well as just kind of, you know, it, it was very much so a safe space for me to have some of those conversations where, you know, the pressure was very much there for them to try to get me to stay in the army and, and make sure I was evaluating that decision. Like, well, are you sure you don't want to command this summer? It's like, Yep, I'm, I'm already committed to this. The, the GMAT is, has been taken already. Like this is, this is where we're going. And, you know, once it, once that was like the decision and that became the party line, you know, they were just beyond supportive my, my whole last few months out and, you know, making sure I was able to, to fly out here to, to visit the school, um, you know, go out to interviews. Um, you know, I interviewed at multiple schools in person and they were, they were very gracious with kind of just letting me go through that whole process because it's something that they they had gone through before as well. So you use them as as a resource. Absolutely. But did you use any other organizations or was it pretty much just? No, it, it was just yeah, financing things from you know from my own pocket and yeah, luck and just, serendipity with right. Okay, <laughs> exactly. Got it. And, and just leaning on folks that you know I was yeah, like like you said, it is very serendipitous. You know and. Uh, maybe that's the the overarching theme to this whole story so far. But you know, I, I'm in a very fortunate spot now. But as as a result of just coming into contact with the right people at the right time. Hey man, luck's a huge part of everybody's life. <laughs> it's just like a lot of times it's more hidden than yep. than you know. And so then you attribute whatever success success you have to like your skill and ability, which like there's an aspect of that sure. your decision making too. Like it's huge, but. Like Based luck is there, the right man. People. Yeah. <laughs> luck is there. Yeah. Um, okay. So you, you apply to a bunch of schools. You're leveraging these two majors who had MBAs. Where'd you apply? Where'd you interview? Where'd you get in? And like, how'd you make your decision on what, I mean, you don't even know what you want to do yet. Right. Right. So how do you make your decision on business school? Yeah. So 
I mean, by the time that the application season rolled around, I was, I was leaning full steam ahead into the, the consulting. I mean, part of it is because I had to have something to put into essays of short-term goals. What is your short-term goal? Why do you want an MBA? Why should we let you in? Um, but, but I was, I was being sincere about it. You know, it, if for nothing else, for lack of any better idea of what to do. Um, but, but like I said, I was starting to realize that there were, there was some overlap there between what I enjoyed in the army and, and what I could see myself doing in a long-term career. So, you know, pursuing MBAs for consulting and, you know, I, I really just leveraged the kind of one of the benefits of, of being in the military is getting free school applications for a lot of these places. And so I, I just leaned into that and I was sending packets to as, as many schools as I thought I could apply to without annoying my recommenders with having too many, you know, different forms to fill out or getting too many different emails from different schools. So, you know, I, I targeted it by round and I'm, you know, having not dealt with like a, that kind of tiered application system or admission system in undergrad that was new to me, but I'm very grateful uh, that that's how business schools tend to operate. Cause I was able to focus on, you know, two or three in round one. And then, um, you know, so I, so I'll unpack it a little bit more. So I applied to in round one booth and Harvard and foster, which is the university of Washington school. And, you know, I was already living in the Seattle area. And part of me was just like, well, I like the Northwest. So, so why not? And it was also, you know, a great state school, so a great safety school to have. Um, immediately dinged by Harvard, didn't even get an interview. And so my my number two was Booth, became my number one very quickly. And um, yeah, I mean, it it became the the right decision. But, you know, after that that initial ding, I was like, okay, I got to scramble and put some more applications together. So so in round two, I looked at Stern, I looked at Wharton and, and Sloan. So those were, I applied to six total, um, but I only interviewed at, you know, here at Booth and then at Foster because, you know, by the time the, the admit invite came out from Booth, you know, I was, it was about time to schedule interviews with the other schools that I had gotten interviews with. And I was like, well, this is, this is where I want to go. Um, you know, you all are kind of plan B to, to where I'm at right now. So I didn't end up interviewing elsewhere besides here and then out in Seattle. Understood. So then the decision was, was pretty clear between Booth and, and Foster. Yeah, very much so. Okay. Um, okay. So you decided to come to Booth. Mm-hmm. You're getting out of the army. How'd your transition go? You messed anything up? You wish you hadn't? <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's a, a very bizarre time to go through as bureaucratic a process as separating from federal service um, as it was during quarantine, where in addition to there being, you know, this, this litany of paperwork that needs to get filled out and every, I have to go visit every single office on post just to get out of the military. Uh, but Oh, by the way, now all of a sudden nobody is working in these offices and you don't know that until you go there and you see like taped on the doors, Hey, call this random person at this phone number. Um, so, so other than the, the, the friction of actually clearing and and going through the whole process, um, you know, I felt that that I'd benefited from, uh, from kind of having a, a huge slowdown put on our whole unit as I was getting out. So rather than being at risk of going out to the field in my last few months, I got to chill at my house with my dog because we were all working remote. So, you know, from that standpoint, my, my transition was very smooth and I had a little bit more time to, uh, to reflect a little more on, 
on this big transition and, you know, learning kind of maybe from some, some past experiences of, you know, like going to undergrad completely unprepared, starting ROTC completely unprepared. I, I didn't want to make those mistakes again. And I wanted to, you know, be able to take advantage of, you know, some of the maturity and the life experience and, and, you know, yeah, just life experience that I'd gotten since, since graduating college and since joining the army. So I, I made sure to take the time to reflect on what was upcoming and, and kind of what I wanted the whole move to look like and, you know, how I wanted, uh, you know, how I just wanted to take advantage of all the opportunities here at, at the school with, you know, with the classmates, with classes and, and everything else. So, um, you know, that, that would be my, my advice for folks looking at transitions is to, to reflect during that period as much as possible. Cause I think it, it really paid some benefits for me for this past quarter. Well, and you kind of alluded to it, but mm -hmm. out of that reflection, what were your priorities coming into business school? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, first and foremost, I wanted to, to be able to give more time to my family than I had, um, in, in the military. And I'm not like, you know, not my kids or anything. I'm, I'm single, but, but my family in Indiana being closer has been incredible. My sister has a young kid. So being able to, you know, kind of be around after really, you know, having those touch points at, at Christmas most years. And that was about it over the last seven years to, to actually being able to, um, you know, be there for Thanksgiving or be there for birthdays and stuff like that. So that, that was a priority. And I wanted to, to make sure I took, took the time to really focus on those relationships, um, with my family. And then as well, um, I, I didn't want to come here to a school like Booth and just let myself get, uh, you know, kind of let myself self-isolate. And, you know, that was a concern I had coming into a, a largely virtual academic setting is, okay, I'm just going to sit in my apartment. I'm going to do all my classes on Zoom and I'm not going to talk to anyone, you know, outside of maybe, maybe I'll have a few drinking buddies and maybe I'll have a few study groups and then that's, that's going to be my human contact. So, so those are really my two priorities coming in was, you know, to, to focus on family and those relationships, but then to also focus on the relationships here at school and realizing that, you know, not, not even just from, from like a networking perspective or anything like that, but just realizing that there were enough other, you know, smart people, successful people, all all around me on a day-to-day -day basis that I wanted to find a few that I could I could like connect with and hopefully build enduring relationships with as well so that was that was really what I entered the quarter hoping to do you know in, in addition to hopefully trying to find a job <laughs> yeah and so when did you show up in Chicago August or before yeah it was late July late early July. August somewhere in okay. there mm -hmm. and you didn't do like a domestic random walk nope or anything like that and missing out on that experience so like a random walk is <laughs> is like in a pre-pandemic world you you go to some foreign country with right. 16 of your your incoming classmates and in four mm -hmm. second years and it's a chance to bond and give you a home base because mm -hmm. booth is like booth's a place where you can take whatever class you want so you're not getting shared experience to the classroom with like a big group of people you're, right. you're sharing that experience with everybody in that class and going to your next one that you chose so like the cohort doesn't provide the same sort of community that it, it does at other places mm -hmm. and i think that random walk makes up for that for like the first month to two months sometimes longer just depends yeah so you missed out on that so you show up and you don't really know anybody mm -hmm. meet some afg people for sure but yeah outside of that like what was what was it like coming in and how did you deal with that apprehension that you'd have to like self-isolate have no friends just be lonely yeah 
Well, I had my dog, so at the end of the day, I was going to come out on top. But <laughs> all right, cool. <laughs> no, uh, yeah. So a, a big part of it was, you know, a, a few AFG folks kind of get, getting in with them early on, and other folks that moved here to the city early was like, let's let's go get drinks, let's go walk the river walk or or do whatever, and you know, building those relationships while we had time um, before classes started. But once. Uh, and, and in addition to that, I was playing a lot of pickup soccer too. So me, meeting folks, uh, uh, other students through that, um, just playing in the park. But then once orientation started, I think for our class, the the squads played a much bigger role in kind of our our social life, especially early, as it probably did for for your experience. Um, you know, because most of us didn't have that random walk experience, or you know, a, a lot of experience socializing with each other at in because orientation was purely virtual um so so it was going out for like squad dinners with these just 10 random people that they they decided to group us all together um but but focusing on those relationships was was very interesting because so much of orientation is is getting after those those softer skills and more of the the interpersonal dynamics of of being a, a good business leader and you know, you, you talk about a lot of very vulnerable things. So it was very interesting, you know, going through this virtually and, you know, talking about our, all of our cognitive filters and, you know, all these, these very like heavy psychological and emotional topics that you talk about during orientation and then, you know, do that all over zoom and then go out to like a squad dinner afterwards or something. So kind of forced to have meaningful relationships there, but it, it ended up, like being very fruitful and, and definitely helped me avoid some of what I was fearful of for sure. And coming in, I think you knew because we, we try to tell everybody, but mm -hmm. that you hit the ground running, like recruiting starts almost immediately. Absolutely. It's a fire hose. <laughs> yeah. Um, how did that feel for you? I mean, you just did it. So yeah. Um, gosh, go back to October and start, start reliving, reliving some stuff, but yeah, really as soon as orientation ends, and classes start orientation start or uh recruiting started well like a week after classes or two weeks after classes so really not long to figure out how to be a student again for the first time in uh what, seven years for me better um, part of a decade yeah <laughs> yeah well unless you count the army schools which are very rigorous um that was my first time being a real student <laughs> in seven years uh so so i had two weeks to learn how to do that at you know a, a school like booth no less and uh, yeah, then jump right into recruiting. And for me, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I think I came out of recruiting maybe not quite stretched as thin as a lot of folks come out of it. Um, and, and I think part of it just has to do with, with how I entered it. And I think, you know, one of my, one of my reflections over the summer as I was starting to get ready for school was that, you know, I, I have lived in a lot of different places in the country. And so there's no particular place where it's like, okay, I have to work in Chicago or I have to work in, you know, I, I had no particular place in mind where I wanted a job in this city. And so for me, what that allowed me to do is enter recruiting and focus more on the relationships rather than, you know, the specific firm or the specific office and kind of just approach it with a clean slate and find during some of these initial mixers or networking events, you know, who, who do I have some chemistry with? Who, who can I see myself like working with or, you know, having a beer with at a, a holiday party or, you know, 
obviously a lot of that's putting the the cart before the horse certainly but but i think it is important to to kind of feel out the, the fit side of things and you know because i wasn't trying to shoehorn myself into a specific location i was able to make i, I think some some very fruitful relationships which ended up making the networking portion of recruiting less transactional and and for me it it really was like hey let's go have a, a genuine 20 minute phone call or let's sit on zoom and like i was legitimately interested in in meeting people that i was being connected with versus just you know i need i need this many notches you know to to get an interview invite at this office or, or whatever the case was so you know tried very much so to approach it not from a transactional standpoint and you know, I didn't feel as strung out by the time that networking was over. I mean, recruiting's still going, but it, that portion of it's over. Well, so as a part of that, for mm-hmm. everybody who doesn't know, like most consulting firms recruit by office. Right. And so you're having to recruit for Chicago or mm-hmm. for Seattle or Boston or whatever, right. Dallas. And so if you're going to explore multiple offices, like it sounds like you did, mm-hmm. You do have to have multiple conversations <laughs> with people from each individual office. Yeah. So you didn't feel strung out at all, like kind of working through that process, or did you make a decision relatively early? Yeah. And I, would you make it on? So I, I definitely entered um, with a just kind of a short list of cities, and you know, so so there were some instances where I was talking where I was talking to you know maybe a few offices for a firm for for the first few weeks of recruiting. And just just kind of feeling out what do some of these initial conversations feel like? What what do I assess the office culture to feel like just based on this touch point? Um, but I I realized that you know from looking at my calendar and still trying to halfway you know focus on classwork and you know some some of the other things that we're at school for, uh, I realized that I that was not an approach I could take for very long. So uh, I I said a. Uh, kind of an arbitrary mark on my calendar, you know, like two or three weeks into recruiting is like, okay, for each, for each firm, I'm going to have one office. That way I can, you know, kind of just focus solely on these relationships and, and meeting more people in this office. And, uh, cause, cause at least my perspective of it, having just gone through it is, is so much more of what is pulling me to some of these jobs is, is the office culture versus the, the firm culture. So it was very important to me to to be able to get the best possible assessment I could on, on the specific offices that I was recruiting for. And so, yeah, definitely made, made the cut pretty early in a, a few weeks in. And then from there it was all, you know, focused on one office per, per firm. Okay. And the decision on consulting, you, you kind of came in thinking that was what you were going to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, in going through the process, did it make you feel more confident or, or less confident <laughs> in that decision? Yeah, I mean, so interviews haven't happened yet, so <laughs> like a grain of salt, right? Well, at the time of this recording, <laughs> I'll, I'll wait till post interviews to publish, so it has no impact. No, um, no, I, I, I think it is a hundred percent the the right path for for where I want to be right now and what I want out of the next few years. Um, you know, and, and we we talked about it. Like, yes, it was very much so serendipity, kind of guiding me through large swaths of my of my life to get me to here but you know it's it's worked out to the benefit of i think i finally landed on something that i could see myself um you know i I certainly see myself doing it after school you know i would i would not be putting this much energy into interview prep and 
you know, signing up for what I know that first week of January is going to be like <laughs> interview season. But uh, no, I'm, it, it is something that I'm, I'm very excited about, you know, and for, for a few reasons, but you know, there's not really a, a better opportunity for me just to learn about what goes on in the business world. And, you know, that was one of my reservations about jumping straight into the full-time workforce after the army is not knowing what's out there. So, you know, consulting gives me a bit of a chance to, to see what's going on without, you know, committing to any particular industry. Um, so, so there's definitely that benefit, but I think also, you know, a lot of those things I was really enjoying about the army and, and started to, uh, you know, be very fruitful, um, endeavors for me, like the, the impact with senior leaders and, um, you know, just working on weird problems that may not have clean answers. Those are things that I all in, enjoy doing and that I, I get a lot of energy from. So, you know, for me now, no reservation. That's, that's the path. I'm, this is the path I'm supposed to be on, but, you know, ask me again in late January and we'll see how we feel. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so what was your balance like this quarter? So school's hard. Mm -hmm objectively yeah. and you can focus as much or as little as you want on it it's a reality but also you're you're here in a pandemic social mm -hmm. distancing's a thing like you it's not like you're going to parties every thursday night or something like that right so like what was your social dynamic like during recruiting because for me you know i was going out to corporate events mm -hmm. and, and you know firm events at, at bars or dinners at some right. point and everything was in person unless you were having phone calls with somebody a coffee chat you know during the week and i didn't recruit chicago either so mm -hmm. they were all all phone calls but it's a very different experience than than the one that most people who have done business school have had so how yeah. did you balance your time and do you feel like it was appropriate or do you do you kind of like wish you would have recalibrated mm. yeah so it, it's fairly easy to balance a social life when there's not a lot of social things going on. So I, I probably benefited. Um, no, I, I, I think I, I came out with a good balance in terms of, you know, on the class side of the house, I focused a little more on just coming to like a conceptual understanding of, you know, a lot of these foundations, um, you know, not, not being as concerned about, you know, how, how do I do the, arithmetic in this specific type of problem, knowing that I'm not going to be an analyst, you know, working this kind of problem on a day-to-day -day basis in my job. But, you know, do I understand the high level concepts? Let me focus there, you know, very much so the 80, 20 <laughs> rule of like, okay, I can, I can be conversational in this topic. And then, you know, to an extent where I can pass a final or a midterm, and then now let me spend the rest of my time in, in these networking events. Um, but yeah, a big part of my social life was just meeting other people also recruiting for consulting over Zoom and just seeing the same people on all these Zoom calls over and over. Um, you know, so kind of probably a loose proxy there for, for some of the in-person networking events where, you know, it, it is the same community and you're all going through this process together. Uh, but that was, that was a big part of my social life outside of you know, a few really AFG buddies that, you know, maybe we, we watch college football or you know, we're, when the weather was a little nicer, we'd go out for a few patio beers or, or what have you. But, you know, those were really the, the only purely social interactions I had, um, you know, definitely spent, spent a lot of time on zoom this quarter. But I, I think that, you know, the balance was about right for me. Cause I feel, I feel well positioned, uh, coming 
kind of entering this last leg of recruiting, but I also, you know, I feel I'm in a position where even if things don't go my way in terms of offers, I, I know that I put in the, the work that I needed to at the end of the day. So I can, I can walk away from the process, you know, feeling proud of, of what I did this last quarter and you know, the same, the same for grades as well. You know, I, I didn't fail out you know, if, if you even can fail a class here, but, um, you know, I, I feel like I, I came out of those classes with, you know, having learned something, I didn't just go through the motions just to get it on the transcript. So, you know, the, the balance worked out. We'll see what happens as things open back up. And, you know, as I have a, a job offer, an internship offer in hand, and, you know, do I, do I maybe, uh, start those chasing those, a little those bit. social interactions a little bit more or do I kind of stay to the course so we'll see but this this quarter I feel pretty good about how it came out okay cool and so looking forward you're going to mm-hmm. get do consulting in the short term yeah ha- has anything that is available at booth kind of directed you more on what you think you might want to do long term have you allowed yourself to think about that or, or yeah very very minimally just because I mean from a like, like through exposure from courses, you know, I, I was taking foundation. So you know, like, I know I don't want to be an economist from taking micro, but like, um, you know, going through some of the more like strategic courses, like going through competitive strategy, I, I started to learn a little bit more about marketing and realizing it was more than, you know, I think before entering business school, marketing and advertising were the same thing to me. And now that I see, Oh, marketing has some cool strategy behind it. And, you know, pricing is very strategic and, you know, some, I, I can see myself potentially, you know, growing a little bit more expertise maybe in, in some of those avenues, like some of the, the pricing models or, or what have you there, or maybe, maybe some marketing function down the road. But, um, you know, that's, that's something where nothing's really pulling me here at booth one way or the other. And I, I expect it probably won't until, you know, I, I reach whatever that magic day is con- in consulting where I find the next best thing. So n- nothing as of yet. Yeah. Spoiler alert. It's probably going to be like <laughs> around the people you work with. You'll find right. like a, a crew that you really love and they'll happen to work in industrials or, you know, exactly. telecommunications or whatever. And you'll just kind of go off in that field. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, typically the way it works. <laughs> and based on your background, I can tell that's, that's what yeah, it's going to be. Most definitely. It's all about relationships for me at the end of the day. And, you know, I, that I know I am here because of the relationships that I've, I've made over the, especially my professional career, but I think kind of leading up to that. And, you know, if the, that contracting officer hadn't have been just the right person to make me feel comfortable with that decision, or, you know, if like my high school soccer coach wouldn't have been one of the people pushing me to go to school. And that was someone I respected greatly. Like, you know, there, there are these, I guess signpost people. I'm gonna I'm gonna phrase that or we'll trademark that right here. But um, you know, having the right people at at just the right time at all those decision points. You know, I've I've very much so benefited from that. And so, looking at relationships moving mm-hmm. forward, like one thing that I don't think relationships are hugely important in the military. Like people yeah. don't realize that, especially in special forces, but. Even, you know, me coming into school, I didn't think about the relationships on, from like the student to professor angle in mm-hmm. the same way a lot of our classmates do, or at least a lot of my classmates did. Yeah. And so as I saw, you know, some of the people I respect most here at Booth begin to like form those relationships with professors and, mm-hmm. and more than just like in the scope of the class, 
um, a kind of a light went off that that is an and can be an important thing to do, yeah. both for the like the knowledge that you want to gain, but also, you know, a relationship with someone who is you know cutting edge in their field or whatever. Have you thought some about that in the relationships you might want to get out of booth from that perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely something I'm going to to pick your brain and in, in other second years in in the future, and yeah, I think that. You know, especially having gone through school in the format that, that it was in this last quarter, I, I don't really have exposure to a lot of the faculty other than, you know, who my professors were. Um, so other than word of mouth of, oh, this professor is, you know, who you go to if you want to be an like an ETA person, right? Um, so, so I know those people are here and I know that, you know, this is like world-class institute. So I know the opportunities are there. And for me, it's just, you know, feeling out, you know, what, what is available to me and, and f finding something that speaks to me. But I, I know like there are so many interesting areas of study being worked on here that I just have to find the, the right one. Um, but that's, that's a very long way of saying that's not something I've, I've looked at in detail yet, but that, that is definitely something I, I want to put some energy in moving forward. Okay, cool. Well, to maybe wrap up on, on something like one question about what you want to try to do this summer, you're going to get mm -hmm. like hope, you know, saying you get a consulting offer yeah you get to choose what industry you want to work in is there something that you're already looking at just based on interest mm. or anything else and then a second question would be what is something that you would want to change about booth if you could just just with your f first quarter under your belt you know recruiting wrapping up here in the next month or so like where do you what do you feel about that I mean, it's been a different experience for you, so I expect yeah. it's going to be a tough question to answer because it's not like you've even been to campus. Mm -hmm. But uh, but we'd love to hear your your kind of perspective on that. Yeah. So so for the first one, you know, I've I've said a few times I don't have like an industry that you know th this is what I want to do the rest of my life. But there are some that I'm definitely interested in. Um, you know, because of like the marketing and and pricing piece, I, you know, I'm interested in kind of the, the retail world and, and seeing how, you know, just seeing the level of thought that goes into like every skew at the grocery store, like, you know, this, this soft drink or this beer was packaged a very specific way for a very specific reason. And it's, it's priced what it is priced for a very specific reason. So, you know, some of the strategic decisions there could be interesting. Um, but I, I also, you know, coming from the Midwest kind of seeing a lot of the the rust belt effects growing up i am also very interested in a lot of the manufacturing um you know so some of the heavier industrial work could be also something i could see myself getting into um you know especially having more of an operations background i think i identify a little more too with with like factory workers or you know um, folks working in plants so uh, those are those are some that kind of at a high level appeal to me but you know very much so interested in just getting my feet wet wherever and and more so learning the process than anything um but second so about booth and and what i would change you know a few tongue-in-cheek ones i would change gts i think it, it it can be a great resource in that it's a database for like all all these resumes and it is a good one-stop shop for job postings for folks that aren't going through dedicated pipelines like consulting or for banking. But, you know, if you are going through a dedicated pipeline where firms are recruiting, you know, outside of GTS, then it just becomes another hurdle you have to clear 
Um, and you have to somehow, even though I have it bookmarked, I have to log in like three separate times just to get to the GTS page. So, you know, maybe just make it more user accessible. But um, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I don't know if it is part of, you know, Booth and, and something that needs to change about the school, but I think that, you know, it, it could be more of a COVID thing, but I would, I would want everyone just to chill a little bit more in, in the student body. I think that, you know, it, it's been a crazy year and, you know, with, with everything going on with, with COVID and the city being shut down. And then I know, you know, there, there was a lot of, of protesting and rioting in Chicago, which, which played a, a heavy role in, in some of the student body discourse over, over the past few months. Um, and, you know, election season and everything going on. And I think what I would want is, you know, people just to be a little more, be, be a little more mindful of the fact that we have so many smart people here that it, it's okay to just be a little more graceful and not expect every single person to say the right thing every time, if that makes sense. But that, I think too, that, you know, that may be less of an indictment on, on like the booth social culture, the, the social network versus more of, you know, you just become less personal when you've been living in a virtual world all year. So maybe it's more a function of that. Who knows? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that anytime you're trying to have a, a thoughtful discussion, mm-hmm. it's really tough to do in the written word. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, good conversations happen on Twitter, but it's super rare <laughs> and using Twitter is like a global proxy for Slack. Mm. Um, it's also super difficult in that environment to have a real conversation. Cause even when you know somebody in person, you know, all you're seeing is what they just wrote right. and, and you know, was that sarcasm or was that real? Yeah. Sarcasm you know, does not come through. doesn't come text. through all the time. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> and I, I think that not enough people grant grace, yeah. like you said, to a conversation and it depends on sometimes it's because somebody does objectively say the wrong thing sure but it's also sometimes a, just a differing opinion and, mm-hmm. and where's the space for that in the conversation around you know ideas or opinions versus you know are we going to allow for heterodox thinking or does it all have to be in line with one thing right and and so like those conversations just aren't i don't think they're capable of being played out in a written forum right where your reputation is at stake and you can't you can't communicate with empathy really mm-hmm. you know, in the same way you can do with like voice intonation and other things absolutely and that's why i mean in person's obviously the best but next best is at least have a conversation whether it's on the phone or on zoom or whatever it's better because there's like a little bit more humanity and there's a lot more intonation and there's more information that's conveyed <laughs> with the words that are associated, right? So I'd agree with you there, but mm-hmm. I, I think it's a large function of just the medium. And then I'm sure that the fact that people don't know each other makes it makes yeah. it worse. But I mean, there were slack fights last year <laughs> when people were in person. So yeah. I think it's inevitable. And we're still point. in a bubble at the end yeah, of the day. So there's certain drama. Always. <laughs> All right, so maybe before we wrap up, mm-hmm. like to any any people out there looking to apply, especially veterans, yeah, is there something you would change about your process? Looking back at like all the decisions you made, we went a little bit more through like filters than real frameworks that you used. Yeah, um, 
but just wondering if you felt like you handled the transition the way you wanted to completely, including applications and everything else, or if there's something either, you know, in that process leading up to Booth or even at Booth that you would change. Yeah, I would advise folks to take take a little bit more advantage of a lot of the fellowships that are out there. That is something I did not do during my transition. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I wanted to do the full six month internship deal for my last six months in the military, but you know, some like maybe the Ignite program or some of these other fellowships that are more in the summer time frame or you know late spring are certainly advantages or opportunities I wish I would have taken advantage of. Um, if nothing else than to, you know, make some contacts outside of Booth, you know, at other top business schools, but also to, you know, kind of kickstart the whole just getting ready to be in business school and be in this setting. Um, so so do something like that to kind of, you know, get the gears whirring a little bit and see, you know, get exposure to an industry that you, you may decide you want to end up recruiting for when you get to campus. So um, def- definitely take advantage of all the crazy opportunities you have as a veteran, especially a transitioning officer, um, or really, I mean, any transitioning veteran, but, uh, there are so many great fellowships out there. I wish I would have taken a look at, but that was the only real, I guess, shortfall I would, I would say I had in my process. Okay. And then for your reflection, did mm-hmm. you use anything like the book designing your life is great, Yeah. but did you read that or did you just kind of do it on your own? Yeah, I read through it. Um, you know, I didn't follow along because I know they have like a, a workbook and you can go through and kind of do some of the activities. But, you know, I read through it and, you know, part of, I guess, just my overarching approach to 2020 was, you know, take advantage of a little more time at home just to be generally more mindful. So, you know, I was just doing some more, you know, generic mindfulness practices. Like I was, I was like kind of regularly reflecting on and then journaling about you know, okay, this is what I want the rest of this year to look like. This is what I want, you know, the next three years to look like, or, you know, things, things like that. And as I was having those, those periods of time where I was kind of forcing myself to sit and and reflect, you know, I was, I was trying to capture it because that was you know definitely something I got in the habit of in the army was kind of capturing reflections after every mission. And I was, you know, trying to do it just a little more preemptively this time around. So, you know, it's, it's all still there. I've, I've got a notebook full of you know, the, the next best idea. Um, no, but I, I do have a, a rough, like, you know, uh, a, a rough way ahead for the next few years kind of plotted out now. And I, I don't think that's something I would have if I hadn't spent the time reflecting up front and, and really capturing those takeaways. Have you kept that going at Booth or was that mm-hmm. kind of, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And it's helped me, um, you know, it, it's helped me through some of the, the gates that I went through this quarter, like, you know, narrowing down offices or, you know, applying to this office over this one um you know it, and it helped me you know just by kind of staying true to that larger narrative that i i want out of the next couple of years um you know it made some of these smaller decisions a little easier to make you know as long as i could just keep them in line with that larger that larger plan okay what do you do like weekly do you have a rhythm or yeah so so a good practice i found is you know like usually sundays because you know sundays are pretty chill but um, take, take some time to kind of reflect on the week that just happened. Um, you know, and, and throughout the week, especially when recruiting was, was crazy and I was having multiple coffee chats in a day, like, you know, I was doing a lot of real time kind of capturing notes about the conversation and how I felt about it and, 
you know, about that, that connection with that person. Um, but then, you know, sitting down Sunday or at some point on the weekend and, and really blocking off a, a decent amount of time just to, to go back through those notes and then, you know, kind of do any course correction. Um, you know, if, if I feel like, oh, I, I spent a lot of time talking to this office, but I don't know if they really fit into my calculus anymore. So, you know, maybe I need to, to adjust and focus more on, uh, you know, talking to these folks this next week. And, you know, it, it helped from that kind of recruiting standpoint, but I think to just helping me make sure I was still getting what I needed to out of classes and, and what I needed to out of, out of my social life as well. And, you know, kind of taking that holistic look every weekend, just be like, okay, this is the week that was, what do I want in the, in the week that's forthcoming? And have I, have I gotten way off path or am I still good to go for this next week? Cool. Awesome, man. Well, looking forward to seeing what comes out of interview season. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and hopefully seeing you um, being able to emerge and just like focus on learning and focus mm-hmm. on getting to know your classmates and all that. Um, for, for clubs, I know you want to be involved in the AFG. Are yeah. there like other things that you're interested in? You've mentioned soccer, but that's, that's about it. So. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not good enough to be in the, the actual club. I'm more of a, more of a pickup guy. Um, no, there, there are, I mean, very much so the AFG just because of, I mean, we've discussed the role that the club had kind of in my whole admissions process and what that looked like. So very much so wanting to, to pay that forward and play a similar role for other vets, but you know, forcing myself to be uncomfortable is something I, I want to do while I'm here and I'm in a, a safe space of being in a school setting. So, you know, looking at some things like the analytics club, where it's like, I, I don't have a programming bone in my body. I've played in Python a little bit, but I know that it will be something difficult for me. So, you know, maybe that's something I should put a lot of energy in is you know, learning how to code in R or code in Python or whatever. So, so some things like that. And then, you know, like, like we were discussing earlier, finding those, you know, those faculty members or other classmates who have interests that align very much with what I want to do and, you know, kind of pursuing those relationships and, and, you know, maybe some like side ventures that, that come out of there. Um, you're working with, there's like a lot of nonprofits, especially on the South side that you can, you can like consult local businesses through this nonprofit. So potentially, um, you know, some avenues there as well to kind of spend some energy the next few years. Awesome. Cool. Well, Hey, really appreciate your time. Yeah, um, it's been great. thanks for, thanks for coming through and really appreciated learning about your background and everything else and best of luck. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. <laughs> Take care.